um, but the Word is good, and God has something to say to us, and I say this all the time, if you just let the Word of God have freedom and authority over your life, you will be, you will be experience um, eternal life, not just in heaven, but you'll experience it right now, um, and you can measure up to the potential that God uh, sees in you, and be the light that he has uh, placed you on this earth to be. Um, and that's what our purpose is as Christians, um, so that we might can say things like come and see, and people can come and they'll see and they'll know that surely God has been in our midst and surely God is present in our lives. Um, and, and, and on that note, we're in our study, uh, back in our study of John's Gospel tonight. We're going to finish out chapter one. Finally, we did a couple introduction sermons, really kind of established three pillars of John's, um, uh, of John's prologue, kind of the, the, the way he identifies Jesus. We'll recap that in a minute, but uh, we're we're back in our study. We're calling this study undeniable um, because John was undeniably convinced um, that Jesus was worth your attention. Um, uh, to be more specifically, John was absolutely convinced that he had come face to face with God. John knew and wants us to know that Jesus is undeniably God. And he goes into great detail in this first chapter to go line by line to tell us that Jesus is the real deal. He's the full display and the full measure of God. And as we study his story, will come face to face as well and will never be the same. And John is inviting us to go on this incredible journey with him. Uh, John wants us to know Jesus' story before he even talks about his own story or his own background. Uh, but we actually are introduced to John in the text tonight. Um, um, after a pretty, uh, pretty intense introduction, um, John would say, this is the story of how I became a follower of Jesus, how I became convinced that Jesus was and undeniably is God in flesh. Now, we've learned a lot about Jesus just in the first 30 verses or so. If you were to ask John, John, just who is Jesus? If you were you know, able to call John up, and I don't know what he's doing right now, but he's probably got better things to do than talk to us. But, hey, he wrote us a book, right? He wrote several books, actually. But if you were to call John up and say, hey, John, you know, just tell me uh, in the short, who is Jesus? Who was? Who is Jesus? John would say he's the eternal word. He's the divine blessing. He's the worthy lamb of God. Do you need anything else? He's the divine logos. He's the word of God, the mind of God, the essence of God that spoke creation into existence, the word of God that that the, the creation is wired by and framed by. If you were to put it in flesh, if you were to print it out in person, Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. He's the incarnation of God's mind, God's heart, God's essence. He is the Word of God for all to see, to all, for all to, uh, to know personally. He is the divine blessing. We talked about that, and that was one of the, really a cool study that we did, uh, how in the ancient, um, ancient world, in ancient Israel, they were always chasing after this blessing. If you read Genesis, it's all, it's all about who's going to get the blessing. Abraham passed it down to Isaac. Isaac's going to pass it down to somebody. They were all chasing after the blessing of God, the grace of all grace from God. Jesus is, John says, the divine blessing, the anointing that the ancients were looking for, that we all want and need from God, Jesus is the only divine blessing, the only approval, favor from God that we'll find. And we learned last time that He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He forgives, He washes, He cleanses, He pardons our sins. You know, John begins the gospel pointing to Jesus as the Word, and in verse 14 and 16, he tells us that Jesus is the source of God's favor that the ancients chased after, that we long for, and then he shifts from narrator to narrative as the account begins with another John 
John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was preparing the way, bridging the gap from old to new. And his, in, in, in his uh, uh, kind of, uh, as he in, introduces us to Jesus, he's talking, about the, talking back and forth to the religious, religious leaders. Who are you, John? What are you doing? And John's talking, you know, real high and lofty stuff. I'm here to prepare a way. There's coming one who's mightier than I. And then one day, just all of a sudden, he sees a man coming out of, uh, uh, of, of the pathway. And he comes toward the Jordan River. And he stops in his tracks. And he says, there he is. And he says, look, and there's just thousands of people that are from all over Judea and all over Jerusalem. They're in the countryside with him. They're at the Jordan River banks. And John says, look, there is. And the way he introduces Jesus to the world, the way he introduces the Word of God, the blessing of God, he says, look, there is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. I baptize you with this water. I clean your outside. But Jesus is going to wash away the hidden, the secrets, the sins of your heart. And not just your heart, but the whole world. Don't you, is that something we got to ask for first? No, no, no. This is going to be done whether you, whether you receive it or not, whether you want it or not, whether you personally get it or not. He is going to wash away the sin of the world. He takes away, he removes, he wipes clear the sin of the world. All of these titles would have made the Jewish audience draw, con, draw connection to their past. But even to those of other religions, of the Greco-Roman uh, re, religions, um, if any of those from the, uh, around the world would have been reading this text, and they many, many did and came to know Jesus through it, um, it would have intrigued them as well. Because they understood the idea of the eternal logos, the mind of the gods, and the idea that that mind, that word could become flesh was very intriguing. The divine blessing that they chased after, and, and of course the ancients of all religions understood animal sacrifice and understood that life for a life was necessary for us to be forgiven somebody else had to die in our place and and the ancients used to barter with the gods with blood all the time so the stage has been set for us and for anyone who may pick up John's gospel to be introduced to the man that John was completely convinced was the word, the favor, and the lamb. And John the Baptist is on record repeating himself again in verse number 36. Um, he once more identifies Jesus as the lamb of God. If you'll look, look at verse 35, it says, The next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, who once more came by, um, he said, Behold, or look... The Lamb of God. But the difference this time is that John is not in an audience of hundreds as he was before, um, but he is just in front and with a few of his followers. Uh, now, we don't talk about this much. We alluded to it this morning, actually, but John the Baptist had his own following. He had his own disciples. He had his own movement, and it was not small. It wasn't insignificant, not at all. Um, remember, John was a part, most likely, he was a part of the Essene movement. That's E-S-S-E-N-E. Um, John was a part of this hermit community community that lived down by the Dead Sea, deep south of Judea. Um, and this was a group of Jews who, who, figured, who figured out the temple and the system of the Jewish religion, it's just not working. I mean, God has not been around for 400 years. The presence of God has not been in the temple for hundreds of years more than that. I mean, we're just going to keep doing the same thing and the same thing and the same thing and nothing's going to happen. I mean, we better start figuring out that there's got to be another way. Did we miss something? Did we not read the Old Testament right? So the, this group of uh, men called the Essenes, 
Essenes are really just these religious hermits. Uh, they kind of, you know, remove themselves from society and they kind of hunker down in this kind of community down south at the Dead Sea. And, and they searched the scriptures and history tells us that they looked for what the religious leaders might have missed. They fasted and they prayed and refrained from most worldly activities. And uh, you know, that's why we, we get the picture of John and he's a man that eats locusts and honey and he, you know, wears camel skin. He's not a man that, that really was a part of society. He was sort of an enigma. But um, John was very popular because he, he was kind of the, the leader. He was kind of the poster boy. He was the microphone mouthpiece for this movement. And they began to be very apocalyptic. And by, by apocalyptic, I mean they were saying things like, the end of the world is near, or the end of the world as we know it is near. And of course, John was right in saying that because the end of the world as it was, a world without a Messiah, a world where the kingdom of God had no door open to man, uh, of course, that age was coming to an end because John was preaching a Messiah was coming, the kingdom was coming, the door was going to open and God was going to start inviting people in. Now most of the hermits, most of the religious uh, people a part of that group, they thought it was going to be a literal end of the world, a literal kingdom of God, a literal restoration of Israel. Of course it didn't work out that way, but, but I know all that's familiar because if you've ever read John's, uh, the, the preaching of John the Baptist in the early parts of all the Gospels, um, that's John's message up and down. Um, John, this figurehead of this movement, um, you know, preached that the winnowing hand is in his fork, you know, the, the axe is in his hand and the winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to chop down the trees that have not bear, borne fruit and burn them in the fire. You know, John's very fiery, right? I mean, if you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. You better get ready. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus shows up and John says, this is the way it's all going to happen. This is the one that's going to bring all this to pass. Now, John's disciples talked about a Messiah and even those that, even though John clearly introduced the world to Jesus, um, not everyone that came under John's teaching um, was introduced to Jesus. Um, there's many examples and throughout history, if you study the, the kind of the, this time period, um, it, John's a circle of influence was so wide. Um, John was his ministry was a little bit longer than Jesus's. So this this community that kind of built up this attention about hey we missed something in the Old Testament. There's a Messiah coming. The end of the world is near. Um, John became very popular, and many people on their pilgrimages to Judea, um, when they would arrive in Jerusalem to go to the temple, they would realize there's a lot of people who are just not going to the temple, but they're going to the Jordan River, and people aren't going to the temple to sacrifice. They're going to the river to be baptized. So John. Um, uh, over, over the years got a lot of people's attention and a lot of people begin to buy into this, this idea that maybe the headquarters doesn't have it all right and maybe that there's something more or there's something that we've missed out on and many people begin to go back to their Jewish communities with this message that a Messiah was on his way that God was about to send the long-awaited Messiah, the next Moses, the next David, the greater, uh, greater than those two uh, obviously, that God was about to do something. So, in that early part, the, the 20s and 30s, uh, even into the 40s AD, there were a lot of Jewish communities around the Roman Empire that had not heard of Jesus, or maybe hadn't heard of Jesus but did not realize that he was the Messiah, but had heard a lot from John and about John's teaching. So John the Baptist started this movement and it's not insignificant and we need to understand that John's movement was big and he had disciples that eventually made their way all around the known world and even though Jesus came and died pretty shortly after John's movement started um, there were some that did not hear about Jesus. But 
that's why in Acts, um, you'll have Paul and the, the apostles, they run into some Messianic Jews who had heard of John's message and had believed that John was right, but had not heard or had not been fully informed about Jesus yet. And there's a reason I'm telling you all this, but maybe you've never paid attention to this. Maybe you haven't read it in a while, but that's why in Acts, you'll hear and you'll read stories like this. And they're really odd, but maybe this helps piece that together now. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and been fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So here's the thing. Apollos knew the Old Testament predicted a Messiah. He had heard it and had been a student under John's ministry, but he didn't know that Jesus, the Messiah that was predicted, had in the meantime come and died and rose again. So here's this guy who is up north in Ephesus preaching that a Messiah is on his way. John said so, and Paul and the gang rolls into town, and they're like, Apollos, all this has happened. And of course, Apollos is like, wow, you know, really? And then they begin to tell him, and it goes on. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, who were friends of Paul, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And the way of God was an early term for Christianity, um, for the church. And they say, hey, Apollos, good news. The Jesus you're preaching about, he came, he died, and he rose again, and he is filling hearts. And Apollos was like, wow, this is too good to be true. I literally just put my faith in this, and you know, I've been preaching it, and you're telling me this has happened under my nose? Of course, there was no internet, right, back then? Wow, what an awesome day that would have been. There were no cell phones, there were no news channels, right? So, the, you know, Apollos was just doing what he could do. And it says that when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he, helped, he greatly helped those who, through grace... Had believed. So we see this emphasis as the Jewish people who had once believed in the law and were looking for a Messiah now had their faith fulfilled because of the grace of God that came through Christ. So maybe you never paid attention to that connection there, but there were people literally who had heard John, put their faith in John's Messiah, yet they had not heard or met him personally, but that was all fixed through the gospel, through the uh, ministry of Acts. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So once he figured it out, he went on to tell um, the world. He went on to tell his, the, the people he had influence over. Um, now, his teaching was very prolific, and, and, and here's the thing. And what's, what's, you know, what's worth our, 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 our time tonight is that John's movement had gotten so big that it was, it was still popular, even though the Jesus movement that really was supposed to replace the John movement, the Jesus movement was kind of a secondary thing to this small Jewish community. And here's the thing. There's a lot of religious movements that have started through the years that all of a sudden, maybe un, uh, you know, not a part of the leader's plan, but Jesus takes a back seat to somebody else's ideas. That's happened throughout history. And even John the Baptist, who was dead by this point, his teachings were still being preached even though Jesus had come People didn't realize it. And John didn't want himself to, be, to receive the attention. John himself said, hey, I want to decrease so he, he can increase. But that's just an example of how it can happen and not even in a sinister or malicious way. Acts 19, it continues though. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. 
You say, well, and when they were talking about being disciples uh, from the area of Judea, Paul was like, well, if you're disciples, you believe in Jesus, you believe in the Holy Spirit. And they're like, we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. And then they go on to detail that we have been baptized into John's baptism. So we put our faith in John as this you know, prophet, and we've trusted that his word was true, but that's all we know. We haven't heard anything else since John started this movement. And Paul's like, okay, now I, now I can, can explain And he said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come. That's Jesus. So the baptism that you receive, this this joining this movement that you're putting your faith in a Messiah who is coming, he's come. And his name is Jesus. And like, wow, wow, we didn't realize that on hearing this. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that just means they joined the church. They They were saved. They joined the church of Jesus Christ. Now, that was a kind of a detour to, to make it clear that John always intended his ministry to be a means to an end. John never wanted anybody walking around saying, I'm a disciple of John, but it happens, doesn't it? Followings to people that never meant to. Maybe they didn't want to, but sometimes people do. John is making clear that he didn't come to start a movement unto himself. He lived to be a means to an end. And you know, there is a fine line for any religious figure, any leader, any influencer, any speaker, any teacher, any preacher, no matter how much, how small or big his movement or may his movement may be. There's a fine line for any religious figure to walk. But here's what we have to learn about any religious movement: past, present, or future. Any religious tradition is at best a means to an end. To bring us into Christ, into His body, the only living movement of God. So the point of this, and the reason why I make a big deal about this tonight, is that John makes an example that, hey, guys, I'm just, I'm just a guy that's trying to start a movement because I'm pointing you to Jesus. Any religious tradition is at best. I mean, there are some cases where they don't do any good. But at best, they are a means to an end to bring us into the body of Christ, to bring us into the family of God, into the church of Jesus Christ. Now there are plenty of religious traditions that are disqualified at even leading people to Jesus because they're, you know, they're not Christian or they're not biblical. You know, other religions acknowledge that Jesus was a good guy, a prophet even. Judaism in its various forms, including John's spin-off movement, it was all to bring people into the body of Christ to lead and to establish the church. But to make it more to bring it more home for us Christians, because, of course, if you're, a church, if you're a part of a church, of course it's about Jesus. But isn't it true that sometimes even denominations put things in front of Jesus? Even traditions that are Christian traditions sometimes put Jesus second, third, fourth, maybe even not on the main priority list. And it doesn't happen on purpose. It just kind of happens by virtue of people saying, well, we got to do this and we got to do this and that's important and that's important. And after a while, the main thing doesn't even make the main list. But here's the thing, the church, it is not confined to a denomination, tradition, or style. The church is not held into those brackets. The church is the body of Christ, represented in various places and sizes by those who have put on, have been baptized into Christ. So what does any Christian denomination, any Christian tradition, what is the end game of any style, any format, any version? It's to get people into the body of Christ, belonging to the family of God, belonging to Jesus. If it doesn't say that's the main goal, you might want to think, I don't know about this, right? And listen, Baptist churches, we're just as guilty, right? But we, if, we make, if we make coming to Christ a, a secondary thing, even anywhere down below number one, right? We're missing the mark. The church is not confined to any certain styles, but it is 
all about becoming a part of a living, breathing organism, the body of Christ. Galatians 3 puts it this way. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul saying? Any barrier, any labels, any ideologies that you think you know, set you apart in the world, all those things come to a halt at Jesus because when you are in Christ, that makes you a part of something much bigger than any other label you could be given or have. Romans 12 verse 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually, members one of another. <laughs> so the point there is that, that we often draw lines based on what we disagree and how we agree and what we think they're right, we're right about and they're wrong about. We draw lines like that, right? And sometimes those lines are necessary, but a lot of times the lines are not even about Jesus, right? They're just about silly things. Now, at the end of the day, the idea of being in Christ, the idea of being in His body, is defined by Jesus. Now, this is about virtues, not versions. What makes you stand apart as a Christian, what makes you a part of His body, is not what version of the faith that you affiliate with. It's the virtues that come by being a part of the faith. And it's about being connected in His community. A Christian is never going to be completely independent, isolated from other Christians. You can't be a Christian without being a part of the community because we are members of His body, one of another. So the church isn't Baptist, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Methodist, Catholic. No matter our tradition or affiliation, our supreme undying allegiance is to Jesus as the Word, as favor, and as the Lamb of God. Which you would think, how would you ever miss that? <laughs> we could be surprised. I, I, we've all walked off of that line. We've all put the wrong thing first. Now, if we're in a movement, whatever it's called, that becomes about anything other than Jesus as the source of truth, the source of blessing, the source of salvation, that leaves us, that leaves us fundamentally changed creatures. We need to abandon that movement. And, and, and any time a denomination realizes, wow, we've put some things on the cart that are not even important at all. Maybe we're not getting it. Maybe we're getting into something that's contrary to Jesus. Whatever the case may be, this is where we draw the lines. Now, and now you might think, well, you know, what does this mean? And, and, you know, what are you trying to say about this, Justin? In a short way of putting it, the only hill we die on is Calvary. Right? You know, listen, I'm going to disagree with you about music, about, it's your, about how you interpret that and that. The only hill... That if we're going to build God's kingdom, if we are going to build God's kingdom and not nitpick and worry over every little thing, the only hill we die on is the one that Jesus died on, right? Because that's the only way we're going to ever get saved or be saved or bring salvation to the rest of the world. Now, what if we had the attitude as church? And I'm talking to y'all as church leaders because y'all are the backbone, the, the, the core of our group. What if we made a decision that the only hill we're going to die on is Calvary? We aren't defined by this tradition or that tradition, this gift or that belief. So many groups are defined or most proud of fringe things, and the gospel seems to take a back seat. The gospel, though, the gospel is Jesus is the source of truth, the fountain of grace, the means of, of our salvation, not for 
But that is what the core of our gospel is, that Jesus is absolute truth. He is the fountain of grace. So if you want to know what we believe, Jesus is what we believe. He is who we believe in, and whatever He said, I'm going with Him, right? Because He is the fountain of grace. He opens the door to people that we would shut the door to. He forgives people that we could never forgive. He changes people that we have given up on. He is a fountain of grace, and we believe that it's important to get that fountain in front of as many people as possible. He's a fountain of grace. He is the source of forgiveness and of salvation. The only way to be delivered from our sin. So John was quick to hand off his followers to Jesus. That's what we as a church make our only priority. That shouldn't seem like a given, but it's easy to see how many things can become a priority and over this. Now, we say we're doing or promoting things that pertain to Christianity, but we can't forget our job. Now, we introduce people to Jesus. That's what our job is. We behave as a body as Jesus would behave. We must consider what Jesus would say and do before we make any public statement or private decision. Because we don't represent just ourselves or our own little, our own little group. We are an arm, a leg, a part of the body of Christ. That's a big deal, right? We don't take our cues from politics. I know everybody here has a political, a political ideology, but your political ideology must bow at the feet of Jesus. Your preferences must bow at the feet of Jesus. Your idea of what it looks like to be a Christian must bow at the feet of Jesus, right? Your idea of how it looks and how it sounds and how it goes and how it should be done must bow at the foot of Jesus because that's the only way the church makes an impact on the world. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, Guys, I wrote to y'all what was most important. And if y'all keep this the most important thing, you'll never go wrong. But if you ever go off, veer off of this path, you're in trouble. Paul wrote, he said, I shared with you what was the first importance that I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures. That He was buried. He was raised on the first, third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul says, hey, I, you know, the, the main thing is that Jesus died and then he rose again. He died for our sins. He rose back to life to give anybody access to heaven that believes that he is the risen son of God. But that's not it. He said, I also shared with you that he appeared. Then he appeared. Then he appeared. He appeared also. So what is, what is Paul saying? He died. He rose. But he has appeared through the Spirit of God. He has made himself known as in post-resurrection to people personally. So what is, our, what is our main thing? That Jesus died. Jesus rose and He appeared. Our worship, our preaching, our community, our policies should all carry this message that Jesus died for our sins. He rose to give us eternal life. And He has been appearing to people through the Spirit of God personally in their hearts ever since. That should influence our preaching, our worship, our policies. Everything we do as a community should represent and should carry that snapshot. We should be able to say to people, come and see. Just come and see. And they should be able to gather into our company and know this is the body of Christ. You worship Jesus. You preach Jesus. You represent Jesus. The Jesus who lived and died and rose again and appeared and filled hearts. I don't have to wonder, what are y'all into? Or what do y'all really believe? And why is that so important? And why is that so important? I came and I saw and I know y'all worship Jesus. You love Jesus. He is the one that lived and died and rose again and has been appearing ever since. I have zero questions. What if, we could, what if you could walk into church and be so clearly convinced that it was all about Jesus? But isn't it true? 
You can't do that in our world. And I'm not bad-mouthing you. I'm talking about our, like, in our, even in our communities, right? Even in our traditions, you can't just walk in and every single time you meet, guarantee that that is going to be the main thing because you never know when something else might steal the stage. And listen, that's why y'all might think, you know, why, you know, why doesn't Justin do some of the things that we used to do? Why don't, why don't we do that? I, as a pastor, cannot let anything get in the way of people getting to Jesus. And people give little to no time, little to no attention to Jesus in our world today. And when somebody sits on a pew or sits in a chair for an hour on Sunday morning, they better be sure to get an hour or however long we're here of 100% Jesus-focused truth, preaching, worship, and community. It's all that we are here to do, but it's everything that we are here to do. To promote the Jesus who loves, who sacrifices, who is about humility and compassion and generosity. The Jesus who brought purpose to pain. He brings life to the dead. You know why this is such a big deal to me? Because I believe. I believe that Jesus is irresistible. When nothing gets in the way or becomes more emphasized than His Word, His grace, and His Spirit. That is how you get the Spirit of God to show up and change hearts. When you give the Word and the grace and the blood of Jesus the main stage, that's when you can say, come and see what God has done, and people will come, and people will see, and people will leave changed. Because what He offers to people to everyone is unrivaled by anything or anyone else. And when we model Him and reflect Him, we may find that we too can become irresistible. So you know what I ask myself every single week as I prepare for a service? You know what we as Christians must ask ourselves every single time we represent the church? Y'all, you represent the church at work, at the doctor, at, at, at the store, in your community. You represent this church wherever you go. Whatever church you're a member of, you represent that church, right? So this is not just a question for people that do this for a living. This is a question for all of us, but pertaining to us tonight. How can we best communicate and best demonstrate an irresistible Jesus. That should define and drive everything, every decision that we make. How can we best... And I know this is where people say, well, Justin, you know, but I know, I know, I know, I know that might be... But, you know, this is how I think it should be done. And you get a hundred people that think, I think my, my, you know, everyone raises their hand and says, well, I think this, I think this, I think this. And that's okay. I'm not saying that everyone's opinion isn't important, isn't valid, because, of course, that's your idea, and that's great. But how can we best demonstrate and communicate an irresistible Jesus? You know what the Bible says? How this can happen? 1 John 4. John says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And in us means in the body. Not just me individually. That happens too, but in the body. That His love through us builds up. There is power in the body when we love because there is a special experience that somebody can, can, can have when they're in the presence of Jesus' followers who love, who love, who love, and who are sh- so focused on sharing the Jesus that they've been saved by at whatever cost. If we operated with this sort of drive and ambition, come and see would be good enough. No plan, no mechanics, no system that's complicated. Just a simple follow me, you'll see. You just have to meet Jesus. 
In fact, that's the strategy that Jesus used in this early ministry that we'd see him take the baton away from John and he utilizes in the rest of this text. And I want to just close our time by just reading this very simple exchange. As John turns the disciples over to Jesus, listen to how Jesus builds his community. Jesus had zero followers before verse 36. John says, there he is. He gains two followers. Most likely this was Andrew, the brother of Peter, and John, the disciple who's writing the book. So the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and said to them, uh, seeing them following him, he said, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is teacher, where are you staying? Or, hey, where are you hanging out? Where's your community? Where's your house? Where's your place that we can come learn about you and know about you and get to know you? And he says, come and see. Jesus was so confident in who he was and what it was like to be around him, he didn't give people a 45-minute uh, you know, pitch. Just come hang out with me. Just come and see. I mean, that's a lot to, you know, that's, you're putting yourself out there, right? You're, John just introduced you as the Messiah, and you got their attention. You can preach a sermon, and they will listen to you. And, John just, and Jesus just says, hey, come and see. Come and see, and they came and saw. Is it that simple? Can it be that easy? What's the word say? Jesus said, come and see. And what did they do? They came and they saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was named Andrew, Simon's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which means stone. So simple. Jesus just, hey, come and see. They came and saw. And then Jesus, you know, introduces himself to Simon, to Andrew's brother, Peter. And Jesus reiterates the name that he gives Peter later on. Another time, Jesus says, Peter, you are Peter on this rock, on this confession that I'm the Christ. I'm going to build my church and hell can't stop it. So Peter, don't forget this. On the confession that you put your faith in the Son of God, the Messiah, the Word, the Lamb, the grace of God. This is what I'm going to build my church, how I'm going to build it. And he says, Peter, I want you to pay close attention to this. Everybody that's listening, pay close attention to this. I have given you the keys to the kingdom. How did y'all come to me? Because you believed that I was the Messiah, and I simply said, come and see. And I made it so impossible to resist who I am. And you came and you saw, here's the keys. Do a good job at replicating this. What if we just would do that simple job? The emphasis that the foundation, the rock of our movement, who is Jesus and how can we put Him on blast to as many people as possible? We've been given this sacred opportunity. If you look at how immediately they immediately feel the weight of this good fortune, Peter and Andrew asked Jesus to pay Philip a visit. Verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So no doubt they wanted to go and meet Philip. They wanted Philip to meet Jesus. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses uh, in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus son of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael, he's, you know... He's not going to be convinced so easily. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip doesn't go into a 45 to an hour long, 45 minute to an hour long, you know, speech about how 
well, actually, something good can come out of Nazareth. What does Philip say? Come and see, because what worked on me can work on you. And I'm not going to be tempted to make it so complicated just because I'm in and I know so much and I'm in this religious authority now. I'm going to do to you what you did, what, I, what was done to me. And all was said to me was come and see and nothing got in the way. So I'm going to say to you, come and see. And I promise you nothing's going to get in the way. Jesus saw Nathanael coming, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed whom there is no deceit. Of course, he, he knew that Nathanael had doubted whether he could be from Nazareth and be the Messiah. And Nathanael said, How do you know my name? How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus said, Nathanael, there's no fooling you. But I've built this movement for people just like you that are doubting and that are skeptical. This is wired and geared for people just like you. And he says, Nathaniel confesses, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus said, listen, if y'all keep this up, if y'all follow this model, you are going to see heaven open and you are going to see lives change. We've made, we've grew the movement from two to four to now six, right? We're not going to stop, guys. We're just getting started. And he turns to us 2,000 years later. And, he, and I think the question has to be asked, are we carrying on this one and only important tradition? This come and see mentality. Are we prioritizing an authentic, accepting community? Promoting an amazing and an awesome Savior. How can we best communicate and demonstrate an irresistible Jesus? It's by an authentic, accepting community. By preaching an amazing, awesome Savior. And if we do that, we will see heaven open. We will see earth moved. If we would be a body, the, the, the way we've been instructed, there would, be so, there would be a dynamic so overwhelming. No matter the pushback, if we carried with us the grace we've received, having been saved, by Jesus to those who we come in contact with, I believe the same power would work through us that worked on us. See, for most of us, there's this disconnect. And church has kind of been in this bubble for most of our lives, and we do things differently, and we come and we go, but there's no attachment, there's no through line. And as soon as we get in, we become so religious, and we see things so technically and so specifically. But what if it was about a body? What if we were just simply about being a body? What if with every gathering we function as an environment where Jesus' compelling word, attractive grace, and wide open salvation took center stage? What if this was what defined us every time we did anything as a body? What if we created environments to which those people who were, would be compelled to come and see because they saw something in us that was different and we had a place for them to come and fit right into where they could be facilitated in connecting with Jesus. Listen, if the Word is our source of teaching, if we point people to Jesus as the source of saving, if we gave maximum attention and efforts to be in a come and see community, heavens, skies are our limits. If you read the whole story, Jesus is constantly seeking and looking to appeal to people, engage people, speak, and meet people's needs. He built a church 
that was wrapped in an attractive, relevant, come-and-see dressing, but it was not just about the outside. It was filled with truth and grace. And nobody entered his community that did not leave a different person. And i got to say, this stuff still works. It's up to us as a body to make sure that this remains the main thing. And if we're not seeing it work, it's up to us to pray and work until it does. I, I know that y'all care that much. I know that we care that much, but that's on our shoulders. And if we do this, hell cannot stop us. Hell can't. Jesus promised, right? Hell can't stop you. Hell can't stop a church that stands on God's Word, that operates by God's grace, and pours out God's love. If we err on any of those, hell can stop us in a minute. But hell cannot stop a church that puts the Word and the grace and the love of God on center stage. This would mark the church for the days of Jesus after for the first hundred years or so of the church. Throughout history, when local bodies have gotten this right, the results are similar to the days of Jesus to the days of Acts. Or if you read the story over and over again, you see something like this. They said to people, come and see what God has done. Come and experience what God can do. Worked every time. And you know why you're saved? Because it worked on you. And you know how we can see other people saved? This same way. And that's the only way. I think y'all are up for the challenge. We're up for the challenge. I think we can make it happen. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God wants to do.